We live in a day in which some Christians in our nation are tempted to be embarrassed by the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is a God that they love. He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of love, the God of the gospel, the God who saves. But the God of the Old Testament, on the other hand, is a vengeful God, a God of wrath. The God of the Old Testament is spiteful, acts in ways that no one in our day would consider to be right or kind. Um, This is, of course, a false picture. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we do not read of two different kinds of gods with two different personalities. It is one God that is presented to us in the Old and the New Testament. A God of justice and a God of mercy. A God who is both a righteous judge and a loving father. In the Old Testament, we're told that God is slow to anger. In the Old Testament, we are told that he loves to show mercy, that he does not rejoice in the death of the wicked. The Bible speaks of the love of God in in many books of the Bible, in hundreds of passages, but there is only one time in our English translations of the Bible where we find God say to his people those three words, I love you. And it's not in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Isaiah. The Old Testament is full of a gracious, loving, merciful God. Now, wait a minute, you say. Surely in the New Testament, it appears that the God of the Old Testament has cooled off a little from the kind of God he was in the Old Testament. I mean, we can't deny how many times in the Old Testament we we read about the wrath of God, the justice of God, passages speaking of him sprinkling the blood of his enemies on his robe. It's when we come to the New Testament that we start reading verses like, God is love. Finally, we get to the New Testament and, and God has put away all of that Old Testament anger, wrath stuff. To that I would first say, have you ever read the book of Revelation, which is in the New Testament? If you have, you would see that the God of love in the New Testament is also still very much a God of justice and righteousness, coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, the New Testament says God is love. Amen, hallelujah, it's true. God is love. You know what else the New Testament says that God is? A consuming fire. A consuming fire. That's the New Testament. So don't pit the New Testament against the Old Testament. Don't buy into this idea of God having split personalities and Old Testament personality into New Testament personality. The two parts of the Bible speak of one God who is good in every way. The two testaments form two lips, which form one mouth, and they speak one truth about one God. And the Old Testament, like the New Testament, preaches the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of the Old Testament. But the reason that some Christians in our day have been ashamed of the Old Testament 
is because our secular culture has seized on certain portions of the Old Testament in order to throw those passages at us in order to humiliate us. Probably the most common example are those commands in Leviticus concerning shellfish and the wearing of clothes made with intermixed materials. Um, How many times in recent years I have heard those who are in support of homosexuality and gay marriage say that Christians are being hypocrites because we quote from Leviticus that homosexuality is a sin and they say right back to us, but don't you eat shrimp? Don't you wear clothes made of mixed materials? And are those not equally forbidden in the book of Leviticus? How can you then defend doing that while accusing us of sinning with homosexuality? Um, When people talk that way, they show that they don't have even a basic understanding of how to read the Old Testament law. There is a difference between civic laws and moral laws. There are some laws that have their roots in the unchangeable character of God and his will for all mankind. And there are some laws that were meant to bring order or to teach a spiritual truth to his people Israel. We will eventually get to the book of Leviticus and we will eventually get to spend time talking about these things. Another common argument that is thrown at us by our secular culture are those passages in which God not only condones, but even commands that people be killed. Passages in the Old Testament where not just men, but women and children are commanded by God to be killed. God sends his people Israel into Canaan with a warrant to go through the land of Canaan and to cleanse the pagan peoples from the land ethnic cleansing some would want to call it genocide and it's commanded by God how can we worship a God like that they say well related to that question is exactly the one that comes up when we come to the 10th plague in this book of Exodus in these passages that we have been studying God himself kills all of the firstborn sons of Egypt Many of these firstborn sons were likely old men or younger men or older children, but certainly there would have been small children and and babies included as well. And so when the question is brought with the most sting in it, it comes at us this way. How can you worship and love and entrust yourself to a God who kills babies is the way it's sometimes put. And so that's the question I want us to tackle this evening. Um, Before I try and bring some biblical help for us on this question, I do want us to look at our passage. And um, I want us to, tonight we're going to be beginning in verse 21 of Exodus 12. Now that means we're bypassing a little bit that we're going to come back to uh, in in the next couple of weeks. But we're going to go down to Exodus 12 and verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select for yourselves according to your go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. 
For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door, and I will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now we've already spent time studying the significance of the blood being applied to the houses. Um, We've talked and will continue to talk in the next couple of weeks about the importance of teaching our children, as this passage includes. And we spent two sermons some weeks ago looking at the 10th plague itself and verses 29 through 32. So this evening I want to dive right in to answering our question of how do we make sense of a God who would kill the firstborn sons of Egypt. And I need to be clear up front. I'm not defending God. God doesn't need to be defended. He is who he is. And it's our responsibility to come to grips with that. My goal is simply to see how we can unite together that this God would do this thing and that he is still good and that we can say that with integrity. So I have six points that I hope will prove to be be helpful. Here we go. Number one, we need to acknowledge the Scripture's teaching that even the youngest of children have intrinsic, inherent dignity. In other words, nobody can look at a passage like this passage and say that our God is a God who doesn't care about children. The rest of the Bible will not let you talk that way. Every single child comes to life in his or her mother's womb because God wills that life to exist. Every child is a miracle of God. Through science, we have names, we have labels for all that happens on a biochemical level to bring about conception and development. But we do not understand at all how unconsciousness, biochemical matter becomes conscious life. It is God who forms every child in that child mother's, child's mother's womb. It is God who knits that child together. It is God who gives that child the features that make that child unique. In the nation of Israel, God gave laws to protect the rights of unborn children. In fact, one of the great sins in the sight of God committed by the pagan peoples that lived around Israel 
was that they would sacrifice children to these pagan gods. And God declared to his people that he would not have them participate in that. He said, you are doing something, when Israel started doing this, he said, you are doing something that I only not only commanded, I never even thought it. Meaning this is the furthest thing away from who I am. And he gave us in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Nothing shows the inherent dignity of even the youngest child more than the fact that God himself took on flesh and was himself a child. God himself lived in the womb of a mother. God himself became a baby. God himself became a little boy and then an older boy and then a man. He was a firstborn son, not only of God, but of Mary. No other creature can say what man can say. God has become one of us. God values human life. There's just no way around it. Wherever Christianity has gone in the world, it has always brought with it a respect for human life. In most cultures throughout history, perhaps due to the large number of children that families had and the high infant fatality rates, children have not been highly valued through most of human history. In his book, When Children Became People... Author O.M. Backey points out that in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, children were considered non-persons. Many families practiced exposition, the practice of leaving and abandoning newborn infants on the side of the road. Others made an industry of capturing these infants and bringing them into slavery. The fact is, especially in Rome, children were considered to be property and not persons, until they reached adulthood. It was into that kind of culture that Christianity came with a biblical view of the worth and the dignity and the preciousness of children. Christianity brought with it a revolutionary view, which is now part of our cultural heritage in the United States. We take it for granted that children are people with dignity and inherent worth. That's a Christian concept. The ancient world didn't know that concept. They didn't believe that concept. God himself has declared the value of each and every human being because he has taken an interest in every single soul. He holds to account every person who treats another of any age with cruelty or wickedness. And of course, we remember the disciples hoping that the, trying to keep the children away from Jesus. They didn't want the children to be a distraction. And what did Jesus say? Let the children come unto me. Our God is a God who values life and values children. You can't say otherwise. Second, to help us make sense of this passage, consider the strong probability, at least in my mind, the strong probability that babies and little children who die go to heaven. Because if this is true, and I think we have some good reasons to believe it is, then God's striking down of these firstborn sons, particularly those who were really young, was more of a judgment upon the families and the people of Egypt than it was upon the young children themselves. Uh, We've already noted how killing the firstborn sons wreaked havoc on the family structure and the legal structure, the, the stability of this ancient nation. But for those firstborn sons who were babies and little children, 
they were spared so much of the miseries of this life taken into heaven itself you and i have no right to take the life of another human being but god does we all belong to him we are his creatures we are the clay he is the potter would we really call him unjust for taking the lives of so many little ones and bringing them directly into his presence in heaven i won't go into all the arguments tonight for believing that little ones go to heaven when they die we've done it before you can find the notes and the audio on the website Um, let me just point out that the bible does seem to teach a dual truth about little children and that dual truth is that they are both guilty before god and that they are innocent before god they are both in one sense guilty and in another sense innocent they are guilty in that they belong to the human race the race of adam and are therefore born with original sin, born under the curse of God. Every little child inherits a sinful, selfish heart. And therefore God would be just and he would be right to destroy every child, even in infancy. A fellow minister I was talking to about this um, used this illustration and it was kind of sharp at first. I wasn't sure how to take it, but I think it helps. Um, he used the illustration of vipers, little snakes. Suppose you went and dug a hole in your backyard, and out came some baby snakes, some baby vipers. They're still too little to really do much to harm you. They haven't done anything to harm you. Would you be happy to coexist with them in your backyard? Or would you be more likely to get the hoe and to kill them? Why? because baby vipers become adult vipers in the same way every baby has the root of sin in its heart and will grow up to rebel against god and will grow up to sin against god and to rebel against him and so surely just as you have the right to kill a viper when it's young so that it doesn't grow old to harm you god has the right to take the life of even young ones who will grow up to be rebellious and sinful We're all born guilty. We're all born worthy of judgment with sin in our hearts. But the Bible also seems to teach that little children are in another sense innocent. Um, One example is Psalm 106 where the psalmist describes a terrible chapter in the story of his people Israel. And and here is um, the passage about child sacrifice. And he says, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they do. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. So what does the Bible mean when it calls these children innocent or says that theirs is innocent blood? Well, I think it means that though these children are certainly born with original sin, the sin of Adam, they've yet not yet reached a point in their life when they are intelligibly and intentionally sinning against the will of God. Um, I do not affirm a, a particular age of accountability as if a child reaches a magical age and that's the defining line for being accountable before God. 
But the Bible does seem to recognize that there is a point in each of our lives when we go from a state of of childish, ignorant, unknowing rebellion against God to, to knowledgeable rebellion. And in his sovereign grace and mercy, surely only because of the blood of Christ, God appears to have chosen to save those little ones who die before they come to the point of true knowledgeable rebellion. When we preached on this before, we noted five kinds of passages that lead us to think this way. There are those passages that do seem to indicate that heavens, that infants are in heaven. There are those passages that seem to show that the Spirit of God can work in the heart of the very youngest children, even in unborn children. We saw those passages that teach that the citizenry of heaven will be a numerous, numerous multitude. And Spurgeon commented when he talked about the multitudes of the saints in heaven, the reason there will be so many multitudes is he believes it will be made up almost predominantly of those little children who have been taken up to heaven. There are those passages that teach that our own individual obedience or disobedience to the will of God will be the basis of judgment on the last day. And there are those passages that emphasize how our God loves to show mercy. And so when you put all of those passages together, I think we have good reason to believe that those who die at the youngest of ages um, are taken into heaven. If you agree with that, that changes the way you read this passage. And it changes the way you understand the judgment of the 10th plague and how you would answer the accusation, how can you worship a God who kills babies? third thing to consider the real question that many people struggle with here is how can God be good and yet bring upon the nation of Egypt such a severe judgment and the answer to that question comes when we recognize the true weight of the glory and the honor of God so let's begin by considering something less glorious than God let's take the glory of our nation I think most of us in this room are convinced that our nation is heading in a disappointing direction right now. But when we take the history of our nation as a whole, we can honestly say that our country has been a beacon for liberty in this world. The United States has been a place of safety where people enjoyed the freedom to practice their religion, to raise their families as they saw fit, to speak freely what they believe. And no other country in the history of the world has been such a launching pad for so many Christian missionaries and for so many humanitarian causes. By most estimations, our nation has been one for which we have much reason to thank God and to praise God. So what about when our nation is attacked? Take Pearl Harbor, for example. Americans lost their lives at Pearl Harbor. And that attack was not only against those soldiers that were stationed there. It was an attack upon America's way of government, America's values. Do you think it was right for us to respond the way we did? Was it right for us to drop atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki? 129,000 people died. People of all ages, 129,000 died in those two bombings. Does this make moral sense to you? Well, for most Americans, the answer has been yes. 
We do not delight in the deaths of 129,000 people. We do not take pleasure in the fact that blood was shed, but we would say that it was right and that it was just for America to respond as it did in order to make clear that attacks upon our people and our values and our way of life would not be allowed. In other words, the glory of this nation was worth the cost. Now, if that was fitting because of the value and the worth of this nation because of what this nation stands for how much more is it fitting for God to defend his glory and his honor when it is trampled is there anything more valuable than the worth and the honor of God fourth consideration what if God had not acted what if God had not acted as he did against the Egyptians Remember, God has not brought these ten plagues upon all nations everywhere. God is patient with sinful people, and he's patient with sinful nations. But Egypt's obstinacy and bold declaration of rebellion against God was something unusual in the world. The the very name of the true God was being cursed by the Pharaoh. The very people of God were being held in bondage by the Egyptians. And when God said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, who is your God that I should listen to him? A direct challenge to the Lord of the universe. All nations are rebellious and sinful. This was something unique. And yet God nine times brought lesser plagues upon this people so that they might repent and a more severe judgment be avoided. And nine times they would not repent. Nine times they would not change. They would not turn. They would not submit. For God to relent now, for God now to to halt and to not bring a great judgment upon the people of Egypt, what would that have done? Mentioned three things. Could mention more, but three. First, it would have given the appearance that God can be defeated, waited out, or beaten. Imagine what your Bible would be like without this 10th plague. Without this 10th plague, the message of Exodus 1 through 10 would be that if you're willing to persevere in unbelief, if you're willing to persevere through lesser plagues, at the end of the day, you can get away with your unbelief. Without the 10th plague, at the end of the day, the message of this book would be you can outlast God and have victory over him in that way. Do you see how God must defend his honor with some great act of judgment? Words are not enough. God has already spoken and spoken and spoken. They're not listening. It is not enough for him to simply say that he is God and for him to say that this rebellion is wicked. If God's actions do not match his words, he will be giving implicit license to sin and rebellion. Without this tenth plague... God would be saying that his glory and his honor are not that important and that the sin of unbelief and rebellion is not that bad. It is part of the glory of God that he is good and in his goodness he is opposed to all evil. He would not be a good God nor a holy God 
to allow the highest of all sin, rebellion against he who is infinitely good and worthy, if he allowed that to go unmet with some great act of judgment, if he allowed that to go unjudged, we could not call him a holy judge or a holy God. Second, had God not acted in this tenth plague, his enemies would have been encouraged. His enemies would have been strengthened. His his people would have been only more greatly abused. Parents, we know from experience that when we let our children misbehave and we do not bring consequences, it strengthens their self-will. It strengthens their resolve to misbehave in the future. So also we must remember that not just Egypt, but many nations were watching what was happening here. Egypt, most important nation on the world at this time. Pharaoh, most powerful man on the world at this time. If God backed off now, if God just let Egypt off the hook, it wouldn't just be Egypt that would now hold the God of the Hebrews in lesser esteem. It was the whole world that was watching. And don't forget, behind all that is happening in these chapters, there is the work of Satan. I think we miss that sometimes as we walk through this text. Everything that's been happening in Exodus so far has been a battle between God the Father and the devil himself, who is working through Pharaoh, who is working through the Egyptians to try and kill the promise of the Messiah and to hinder what God has promised. Nobody would have been more encouraged or more strengthened if God held off now than the devil himself. And then third, had God not acted to defend his glory, it would have gone against the very purpose of the universe. What is the purpose of the universe? Lord willing, we'll spend more time on that this fall. But put simply, the purpose of the universe is for God to bring glory to himself. The whole reason that anything exists, the whole reason that you exist and I exist and sharks exist and forests exist and Venus exists and you name it, the whole reason that everything exists is because God is so full of glorious attributes and he delights to exercise them. He he delights to do what he does as it's right for Michelangelo to paint as it is right for Mozart to compose music. It is right for the God who is so full of wisdom and justice and patience and mercy to have opportunity to actually express those. And it's in the handiwork of creation and it's in the unfolding of history that God gets to display his glory. And part of God's ultimate plan is that there be a people redeemed unto himself who get to not only be a part of that glory, but get to see that glory, savor that glory, and delight in that glory with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit, forever and ever and ever. The whole purpose of the universe is that there be a people who join with God in delighting in His glory. If that's the end of all things, if that's the purpose for which all things exist and why we were created, would it make any sense for God's glory to be outright challenged and trampled and for God not to respond? Isaiah forty-eight eleven. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. I'm going to use a little bit of strong language here. 
Husbands, how would you feel if someone accused your wife of being a whore? Would that not be an affront to the glory and the honor of your wife? Would that not just rile you up that someone would attack the dignity of your wife in that way? Well, as great as your allegiance is to the dignity of your wife, a million times greater is God's allegiance to the dignity and glory and worth of his name. And we can be sure that he will not allow his glory to go undefended. Want to think of it differently? The Father is absolutely committed to the glory of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is absolutely committed to the glory of his Father. And each one of them will not allow the other to be trampled or dishonored. And so together, they unite for the purposes of the glory of God. Fifth consideration. Fifth consideration. This tenth plague not only makes a statement about God's glory and honor, it also makes a statement about God's commitment to his people. It makes a statement about God's commitment to his people. What did God tell Pharaoh many chapters ago? Through Moses, the message came to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That was way back before the first plague. So this tenth plague doesn't just suddenly come out of nowhere. Pharaoh has been warned. Egypt has been warned. And now after giving every opportunity for them to let God's people go, God must himself open the clenched fists of Egypt so that his people will be set free. Mount Hermon, do you see here how serious God is about the care of his children? He will only let his children be oppressed and persecuted for so long before he will act for the sake of his children. We've seen this prophetic lesson before. Just as God brought judgment upon the Egyptians for harassing and persecuting his people. So a day is coming when God will bring recompense for every one of his children who has ever been harassed or persecuted around this world. The tenth plague tells us this, that God is serious about his love and his commitment and his loyalty to those whom he has made his own. And then the last consideration that I hope will help you and help make sense of of this passage, it's this. How many people through the millennia, have heard the story of the tenth plague with its judgment, but also with its message of salvation, and come to Christ. Through this mighty act of God, God is not only setting his people Israel free from bondage, but he has used this account over and over and over again to bring people to Christ and to set them on a path that leads to heaven. Remember, Israel deserved this plague just as much as the Egyptians did. Israel was a sinful nation too. 
But God ordained this plague and brought it about it so that he could proclaim to millions and millions throughout human history the message of the gospel. That God has a lamb and that that lamb was slain. And that when the blood of the lamb is applied to any sinner, though he or she deserves the wrath of God, God will pass over that person. This is what really the whole account has always been about. Yes, it teaches us the justice of God. Yes, it teaches us the wrath of God. But it mainly teaches us the grace and the mercy of God and his way of salvation. His way of redemption. And so, yes, the firstborn of Egypt died and God killed them. And through their deaths, many, many, many have been brought to Christ as this story has been retold over and over again for 2,000 and more years. I hope these considerations help. I hope they help as you think through tough questions like this. Our God is not some hot-headed deity that sometimes loses his temper and acts in horrible ways. It's not our God. Our God is just and our God is right. He is fair, and he is wise. He knows what he's doing, and the plan that he's working out is far greater than anything we've yet grasped. Should you fear this God? Yes. Yes, you should fear this God, and you should love this God. As is said of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, so we say of our God, he is not tame, He will not stoop to be what we want him to be, but he is good. He is a consuming fire, but he is also love. So let us trust him and let us find rest for our souls in our God. Amen? Amen.